Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. In this edition, Michael Abair tells us about the life of David Lloyd George. David Lloyd George, he was a leader in war and peace, as well as a social reformer. He was a salesman of honours, a womanizer on a very grand scale, and a resident of Chert in his later life. David George, another one with a different name. David George was born near Hume, Manchester, 17th of January, 1863, to a teacher who taught in many different places and Manchester was his last because he was stricken with pneumonia uh, when he was in Manchester. Uh, stopped teaching, became very briefly a f- small farmer in Pembrokeshire, leaving his pregnant widow, his son David, and an older daughter. The family were all taken in when he died by the widow's brother, Richard Lloyd. He was a master bootmaker. He was a Baptist minister and he was a prominent local politician as well and he was brought up in Wales as part of his family. David liked to make a lot of the poverty of his childhood but it's not really quite right. He, like the others in the family, went to the village school where he was said to be quick rather than industrious. His first language was Welsh. To date, he's the only Welsh Prime Minister we've ever had. He's also the only solicitor to have become Prime Minister. We've had any number of barristers, but only one solicitor. Richard Lloyd lived to see David become Prime Minister and was such an influence on young David that he took his name and called himself David Lloyd George. Mother, and particularly his uncle, thought he'd be a very good solicitor. And at the age of 16, he was articled to a firm of lawyers in Port Maddock. Five years later, at 21, he qualified and started his own solicitor's practice at Crickieth, in the family's back parlour. Soon his younger brother, William, joined the practice, and by the following year, 1885, they had offices in Port Maddock, followed by other local towns as well. They must have been very successful, because a further two years later, at the age of 25, David married Margaret Owen, the daughter of a very wealthy local yeoman farmer family, that same year he and other young liberals started a monthly newspaper in Welsh which translated as the Bugle of Freedom. Five years later he entered politics as the Liberal MP for Carnarvon Boroughs. Just 19 votes in the general election he won by. He was to remain MP there for 55 years. He said very little in his early days in Parliament but was gradually moving towards the theory of Welsh nationalism and even tried to start up a Welsh Nationalist Party, very loosely based on Parnell's party in Ireland. He was heavily involved in the Welsh Disestablishment Bill, which was passed under the Rosebery government. In 1889, he became an alderman on the Carnarvonshire County Council, which had been created by the Local Government Act of the previous year, and went on to become a JP, Justice of the Peace. Soon afterwards, the South African War started, And in 1895, five years after entering the Commons, David Lloyd George found himself in opposition after a surprise vote went against the Liberal government over the shortage of ammunition 
provided to the army. The Liberals stayed out of power for 10 years until 1905. He was really interested in Welsh politics only at that time, but he found himself the leader of the left-wing Liberals in 1896 and found that he just had to get interested in politics on a wider field beyond the borders of Wales. He really threw himself into English politics and was so passionate in his opposition to the Agricultural Rates Bill that he got himself suspended from Parliament over it. Whilst he was very interested in politics over the whole of Britain by this time, he was firmly opposed to the South African War, and this made him extremely unpopular in this country. It was in Birmingham, just before Christmas 1901, that things really came to a head, and the crowd was so incensed by his speech and were baying for his head that he only escaped by dressing up as a policeman and marching out with the rest of the policemen. He was certainly a passionate politician and took chances on things he felt were right. One of his particular interests was in the temperance movement. By the end of the South African War, he'd opposed his own Liberal Party almost as much as he'd opposed the Conservative government of the day. The Conservative Party's Education Bill of 1902, which he strongly opposed, found him elected leader of the whole Liberal Party. He felt so strongly about this bill that even the Conservative Prime Minister, Balfour, paid tribute to his defiance. Members of Parliament were not paid at that time, so he supported himself through his legal practice, which his brother William George was running. Whilst he kept that partnership running, he also set up a practice in London, which used the name Lloyd George & Co., then merged this London practice with Arthur Rhys Roberts, who later became official solicitor, under the name Lloyd George Robertson Co. From 1906, when the Liberals regained power under Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman, Lloyd George became president of the Board of Trade. In this job, he introduced legislation on several topics, including merchant shipping and railways. But it was his action in negotiating an agreement to a national rail strike that made him really very well known and started to make trade unions more acceptable in industry. Two weeks after this success, his daughter sadly died of appendicitis. On Campbell Bannerman's death in 1908, Asquith became Prime Minister and Lloyd George took over his old job as Chancellor of the Exchequer, a role that he held until 1915. His first major problem as Chancellor was over the 1908 to 1909 naval estimates. His Liberal Party had campaigned on reducing the massive expenditure on military equipment, particularly dreadnoughts for the Navy. And he was firmly in favour of these cutbacks. So when the Navy asked for six of these mighty battleships, he cut it down to four with the support of the government. The Conservatives, supported by the First Sea Lord, Admiral Jackie Fisher fought this move and got the support of the country with the slogan, we want eight and we won't wait. Eventually, Lloyd George and the government had to back down and eight new dreadnoughts were started. Without these, the balance of sea power in the Great War and especially the Battle of Jutland would have been entirely different, of course. But it could also be argued that this arms race was one of the causes of the war. The People's Budget of 1909 did not bring in state pensions, which had been already introduced by Asquith, 
but it did introduce state support for people who were sick or disabled as the liberal reforms and was referred to for years as going on the Lloyd George. This and the extra dreadnoughts were to be paid for by increasing taxes on luxuries, cigarettes and alcohol, on income tax and on land taxes. Of course, this was deeply unpopular with the landed classes who made up most of the House of Commons and all of the House of Lords. In his famous Limehouse speech, he denounced the Conservatives and anyone else opposing his tax increases, and he won the day. The Liberals were re-elected in 1910, largely because of his powerful speeches. In 1913, Lloyd George was involved in the Marconi scandal. He and the Attorney General, Rufus Isaacs, were accused of what we would generally know as insider trading. The accusation was that they'd both bought shares in Marconi, knowing that the company was about to be given a huge government contract, so that the value of their shares would go rocketing up and give the two men huge profits. Lloyd George was rather economical with the truth when he said that he had not speculated in shares in that company. It turned out later he'd invested in the American parent company. He was involved in the Welsh Church Act of 1914, which accepted that the Church of England no longer had the majority of the population attending its churches in Wales, as the majority were non-conformists, particularly Methodists. Although the Act was passed in 1914, it did not come into force until 1920. The Act had implications for the six Welsh bishops sitting in the House of Lords, who of course lost their seats. Until the Agadir crisis in 1911, when the French sent troops into Morocco and the Germans sent a gunboat to deter them, Lloyd George was considered to be an opponent of war. But after that, he made a very fiery speech about German aggression, and he supported the empire entering the war on behalf of Belgium, because it, like Wales, was a small nation. Shortly after the outbreak of war, in May 1915, the coalition government was created. There was a crisis over the shortage of shells for the army, as, as I'd said, it happened previously and happened again. Lloyd George was made Minister of Munitions, a job which demanded a strong leader. He did such a good job that he got praise from everyone involved and managed to get production up and improved the logistics of getting the shells from the factories to the guns. It may be, though, that a large part of this was due to improvements already in place before he took charge. Nobody really knows. He wasn't really very happy with the way the war was going and wanted to knock away the props, as he called it. In other words, to attack Germany's allies, not just Germany itself. He wanted to send troops to Greece, which was done, but was not on the scale that he had proposed. He also wanted a grand Balkan offensive, but mountain ranges made this rather impractical. He proposed sending machine guns to Romania, but there weren't enough for the trenches in France and Belgium, which had priority. All this led to bad relations with the chief of the Imperial General Staff, General Robertson, who was, according to Lloyd George, brusque to the point of rudeness, and I quote again, barely concealed his contempt for Lloyd George's uh, military opinions. Robertson's favourite response was, I've heard different. 
Lloyd George did persuade Lord Kitchener, a Secretary of State for War, to create a Welsh division, but could not persuade him to appoint nonconformist chaplains to the army. By late 1915, he was firmly in favour of conscription for the army, as volunteers were slowly reducing and the tremendous losses of men demanded replacement troops. He was instrumental in pushing through the Conscription Act of 1916. When Kitchener was killed in 1916, when his ship was uh, sunk by a mine on its way to Russia, Lloyd George was appointed the Coalition's Minister for War, although he was very cleverly kept at arm's length from General Robertson, who reported directly to the Cabinet, not through the Minister. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson was offering to mediate between the two sides, but Lloyd George was adamant that the fight had to be to a knockout, not a truce, which was a brave comment when war turned out to be only halfway through. He continued to annoy General Robertson by trying to interfere. He was unhappy about the way the Battle of the Somme was going. He was critical of General Haig. He again tried to get more troops sent to Romania, then tried to get Robertson sent on a long visit to Russia that the general flatly refused to do. Much of the press was on the side of the professionals, Hagen Robertson, rather than the attempts of interfering amateurs, which had led to disasters such as Gallipoli. The Prime Minister Asquith demanded that Lloyd George gave his word of honour that he was happy with both Hague and Robertson, which he did. By the end of the year, Robertson was rarely invited to cabinet meetings so that they could be kept apart. And then Asquith was forced out of office when he refused to allow Lloyd George to chair a small committee to mastermind the conduct of the war in a vigorous fashion. Lloyd George now became Prime Minister at the age of 53. This split the Liberal Party into two factions, those for Asquith and those for Lloyd George. In his book War Memories, he said the following, There are certain indispensable qualities essential to the Chief Minister of the crown in a great war. Such a minister must have courage, composure, and judgment. All this Mr. Asquith possessed in a superlative degree, but a war minister must also have vision, imagination, and initiative. He must show untiring assiduity, must exercise constant oversight and supervision of every sphere of war activity must possess driving force to energize this activity, must be in continuous consultation with experts, official and unofficial, as to the best means of utilizing the resources of the country in conjunction with the allies for the achievement of victory. If to this can be added a flair for conducting a great fight, then you have an ideal war minister. That's what he said. I'm not at all sure that the Chief of the Imperial General Staff would have supported his views about himself, but uh, there we go. The Coalition War Cabinet at the time comprised David Lloyd George as Prime Minister, three Conservatives, Lord Curzon, Andrew Bonnelaw, and the Chancellor, Lord Milner, plus Arthur Henderson, who unofficially represented the Labour. Tensions between Lloyd George and the Army Command, the Brassats, got worse due to the Nivelle affair. General Nivelle was a French army officer who'd fought very strongly at the Battle of Verdun and who claimed he could break the Germans in two days. His plan was for Haig and, and the English to be put under his command and for the British to start attacking the German lines 
and involve the German reserves. His French army would then sweep in and victory would be theirs. He was more and more convinced that Haig's dithering was the reason why the war had continued for so long. Neither the Secretary of State for War, Lord Derby, nor Robertson were asked to, to the cabinet meeting that discussed and agreed this. And more important, the King was not given the minutes of the meeting until it was all too late. The action took place at Arras. The British losses were exceptionally high, even by the standards of the Great War. Germans had got to hear about the plans and suffered relatively few losses. And the French, sad to say, were a total disaster, which pushed the French army to the verge of mutiny. By late 1916, shipping losses from U-boat attacks were getting to be a major problem. Lloyd George would have us believe from his writings that he almost fought the Admiralty single-handed to get a convoy system established. But subsequent investigation has proved without any doubt at all that his support for convoys was at best patchy. The Navy was adamant that the merchant Navy captains would not have the skill and discipline to keep in lines. And it was not until America entered the war that convoys were really used. Until that time, most of the goods coming to Britain from around the empire and the world were sent first to America, then shipped across the Atlantic, which was more heavily patrolled by the Royal Navy. Lloyd George welcomed the Russian Revolution in 1917, although he was surprised that it had taken place, as he'd had two senior ministers in Moscow a few weeks before it happened, and they'd heard nothing about it at all. The king would have felt rather differently about the fall of his cousin, the Tsar, of course. Lloyd George felt that it was helpful that Russia, France, and Britain were led by liberal governments against the autocratic central powers. He was sure that the Russian war effort would be invigorated, much as the French had been after their revolution way back in 1789. He was not exactly supportive of the suggestion by the Russians that the Tsar and his family be given asylum in Britain, which caused him to be blamed when they were murdered the following year. It was decided to set up an imperial war cabinet, including representatives from India, Canada, Newfoundland, Australia, New Zealand, which met in March to, to May 1917, whilst the war was in a very tricky position for the Allies. Jan Smuts from South Africa was, was brought into the British war cabinet a couple of months later. The next step was that Lloyd George set up a war policy committee and at their very first meeting he told them he wanted to help the Italians capture Trieste expressly because he wanted Italian soldiers to be killed rather than British. This is confirmed in the minutes of that meeting. Haig, meanwhile, was determined to push the Germans back further from the coast of Belgium where their shipping could supply the troops and suggested that a victory at Ypres would probably cause the collapse of the German war effort. It was agreed eventually to go ahead with this proposal, but that the war cabinet would need to keep an eye on casualty levels, as they were not prepared to go into another battle of attrition as the Somme had been. Lloyd George had not got his way and threatened to resign and call a general election so that the people could decide. The Battle of Passchendaele, near Ypres in Belgium, started on the 31st of July, but soon got bogged down as it was unseasonably wet. Again, Lloyd George was unhappy and at this time tried to enlist the help of the king, 
as the monarch and his prime minister were joint trustees of the country. He managed to get 50 heavy guns sent to Italy from Britain and another 50 from France, which was only a third of the guns he'd wanted to send. But as soon as the guns arrived, the Italians cancelled the offensive, so the whole thing was a waste of time, effort, and valuable resources. Next, in a meeting of the War Council in Boulogne, he suggested that the French should have control of the war. It was generally accepted that the German army was very tired of the fighting, but I'm not sure that the same couldn't be said of the other allies as, as well. But still, the dreadful Battle of Passchendaele continued. It was rumoured that Lloyd George only agreed to allow the battle to continue to discredit Haig and Robertson and make it easier for him to forbid similar offensives in 1918. The battle continued for well over three months and cost a quarter of a million British and Empire casualties. But of course, the true level of casualties was kept from the population at that time. With both Italy and Russia out of the war and the Americans only just entering it, early 1918 was a critical time for the Allies. General Robertson was insistent that the Germans would try to mount a major offensive, and Lloyd George was equally certain that they would not. Lloyd George said that he would, quote, stake his entire political reputation to avoid another battle like the Somme or Passchendaele. Again, he tried to get Haig and Robertson out of their jobs, but again he failed when they were supported by Lord Derby. But during the winter of 1917-18, he did manage to get both Robertson the Chief of Imperial General Staff, and, and Lord Jellicoe, the first Sea Lord, out of office. The Germans did indeed have a major push, and in early 18, they had significant success, pushed the British and French back by several miles, having released a lot of troops from the Eastern Front. But it was only the arrival of the Americans that changed things and led to the armistice. In Palestine, Edmund Allenby was appointed commander with a brief to take Jerusalem by Christmas and was told by Lloyd George whatever resources he wanted, he could have. Unfortunately, when he decided he wanted 13 extra divisions from the army, Lloyd George was unable to come up with them as they were desperately needed in Belgium. But Alan Bean managed to press ahead and did indeed, of course, take Jerusalem. Lloyd George managed to get the resignations of both the service chiefs but it almost caused the resignation of all the other sea lords. The war cabinet proved to be a very successful experiment and met most days with Maurice Hankey as secretary. In early 1918, rationing was introduced for meat, sugar and butter, but not for bread. During the period of the war, trade union membership doubled from 4 million to 8 million. And by the beginning of 1918, strikes were commonplace over pay, working hours, prices, and inadequate housing. The Liberal Party started to really break apart in 1918. Lloyd George had told Parliament that Haig's forces were stronger on the Western Front than they had been a year before. Unfortunately, this was not correct. Although there were more men there, a lot were labourers, mostly Chinese and Indians, there were actually fewer fighting soldiers holding a longer front. The inf information had come from the War Department, and in particular from Major General Sir Frederick Morris. He then alleged that the government had held back soldiers from the front, and that Lloyd George and Bonalore had lied to Parliament about it. 
Asquith, as Liberal leader in the House, accused Lloyd George over it, and it was only a typically passionate speech from Lloyd George that saved his position. Meanwhile, the Americans were sending around 10,000 soldiers to the front every day, whilst the resolve of the Germans was shrinking faster than their troop numbers. Of course, victory came on the 11th of November 1918. Next came the general election of 1918. Lloyd George led a coalition of conservatives and his part of the Liberal Party to victory in what became known as the coupon election. Coupons, or more correctly, letters endorsing the coalition, were signed by him and also by Bonalor. He did not actually say, we will squeeze the German lemon until the pips squeak. That was Geddes. But he did imply this and was certainly in favour of looking to the Germans for the entire cost of the war, including pensions. He summarised his programme as, number one, the trial of Wilhelm II. Number two, punishment for atrocities. Number three, the fullest indemnity from Germany. Number four, Britain for the British, socially and industrially. A rehabilitation for those injured or broken in the war and a happier country for all. The main theme of the election was what to do with Germany rather than how to take Britain ahead. But it was Lloyd George who first called for a country fit for heroes to live in. His National Liberal Coalition won the election convincingly with 525 of the then 707 seats. More than two-thirds of the coalition MPs were Conservatives. Asquith's wing of the Liberal Party who were not in the coalition, were crushed and only gained 33 seats. Despite wanting the entire cost of the war to be the responsibility of Germany, at the Treaty of Versailles, he was softer on the Germans than Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister, and Orlando from Italy, who both wanted Germany to be entirely crushed, both economically and politically. Woodrow Wilson, the US president, was closer to Lloyd George on this. As we now know, the reparations were a major cause of the rise of Hitler and the Second World War only 20 years later. During the last few months of the war and over the following few years, Lloyd George set about a lot of social reform. This included the Representation of the People Act of 1918, which abolished most of the property qualifications for men to be allowed to vote and importantly gave the vote to women, albeit only over the age of 30. It also allowed women to become members of parliament for the first time. The Education Act, again 1918, raised the school leaving age as high as 14. Another piece of legislation that was very important was the Housing and Town Planning Act of 1919, which allowed for subsidies for local authority housing. A total of 170,000 new homes were built under this legislation. There was a Rent Act protect tenants from huge rent increases, an Agriculture Act which gave more security of tenure for tenant farmers and brought in a minimum wage for farm workers, and the Burnham Scale was introduced in 1921 to standardise salaries for teachers. But perhaps the most important was the Unemployment Insurance Act of 1920, which extended national insurance to 11 million more people than had been covered previously, so that the vast majority of the workforce, but not all of it, was covered. The 1920 National Health Insurance Act increased insurance benefits and meant that more people were entitled to pensions. 
State pensions were doubled, and in 1919, a Ministry of Health was set up for the first time. There was also an act that stopped children under 14 being put to work, except in a very few carefully controlled cases. Unfortunately, some of the social reforms were affected by the Geddes Acts, where Sir Eric Geddes chopped out massive savings as the national debt was rising at a rate that could not be supported by the economy. He had difficulties at home over his links with Russia. In May 1920, he encouraged a trade mission led by a very senior Russian official by the name of Krasin, who came to London, then returned again three months later in August. The then head of the British Army, Lord Wilson, described Lloyd George as a traitor and a Bolshevist, as it was so soon after the Russian Revolution and the Battle of Warsaw. Despite this, Lloyd George pushed through the trade deal, which was signed in the spring of 1921. Lloyd George also had a difficult time with Ireland. His effort to extend conscription to Ireland in 1918 was disastrous and led strength to Sinn Féin, who immediately declared an Irish Republic. Then in May 1920, he established what we now know as Northern Ireland. The next problem to loom up on Lloyd George was the so-called Chanak crisis of 1922, which almost led to war with Turkey. The Turks wanted to take back land from Greece. Lloyd George and Winston Churchill were all in favor of going to war if needed, despite severe opposition from France and Canada. But the senior British military leaders had a very different view and felt that the army couldn't face another war so soon after the Great War, nor could the British public. The affair fizzled out a bit when the senior British general on the ground there flatly refused to deliver an ultimatum to the Turks as he felt it would inflame the situation further. But it could have easily led to a costly and disastrous war due to the out-of-touch and bombastic attitudes of Lloyd George and Churchill. It was resolved sensibly in the end by the Greeks and Turks themselves. Coalitions, by their very nature, are liable to develop cracks, and Lloyd George's coalition with the Conservatives was no exception. By 1922, the Conservatives were able to prove that Lloyd George had been totally corrupt in selling knighthoods, OBEs, and even peerages. This led to the Honours, Prevention and Abuses Act of 1925. They were also upset that if Lloyd George didn't like a particular government department, they were sent to hold their meetings in the garden of 10 Downing Street, whatever the weather. <laughs> and that he often didn't turn up for cabinet meetings either. In 1922, the Conservative part of the coalition held a meeting at the Carlton Club to decide their attitude to the coalition, especially with regard to the forthcoming election. Austin Chamberlain, the leader of the Conservatives, Arthur Balfour and several others were all in favour of continuing the coalition, whilst Bonalore, Stanley Baldwin and many others argued that they were best on their own. Eventually, the vote was taken, and the Conservative Party decided to go its own way by a margin of 100 votes, 187 to 87. And that is how the coalition government came to an end at the election of 1923. Lloyd George remained very active in the political scene, and many felt he was sure to return to power, but it never happened. Just before the 1923 election, he resolved his long-running dispute with Asquith, and this allowed the Liberals to reform themselves as a united group against the Conservatives, 
who were by then led by Stanley Baldwin. He both feared and despised Lloyd George and would do almost anything to keep him out of power. Baldwin was so concerned that Lloyd George would call for trade tariffs that he got there first and made them part of his policy, although he never believed in them. There was also a strong rumour that the Liberals would call for prohibition, as in the United States, which was thought to be a popular policy amongst the newly enfranchised women voters. But this has never been proved and is probably untrue. It does illustrate Stanley Baldwin's paranoia about his opponent, though. The general election left the Liberals in a very weak third place behind the Conservatives and Labour. Even Asquith lost his seat and Lloyd George became chairman of the Liberal MPs. Then in 1926, he became Liberal Party leader. He wrote his Green Book and his Yellow Book, which, amongst the other policies, looked to spend heavily on public works, uh, or promised to anyway, and help the unemployment problem. He was also assisted by John Maynard Keynes in writing We Can Conquer Unemployment, which set out a series of policies to help to deal with the terrible problems of, of unemployment. Beveridge was also involved in this project, which several years later led to the Beveridge Report, the social reforms that we now know as the welfare state. The next election in 1929 only slightly increased the number of Liberal MPs, and this time Labour was the largest party. Lloyd George was well and truly on the sidelines of British politics, but the Liberals were supporting the minority Labour government, so had a very small amount of influence. In 1929, Lloyd George became the father of the House, the longest-serving member of Parliament. In 1931, an illness prevented Lloyd George joining the new national government, so when he called for the Liberals to pull out of it, only a handful did so, leaving most in it under the leadership of Sir Herbert Samuel. It was at this time that Lloyd George published his War Memoirs, which I mentioned earlier. In January 1935, he published his Ideas on the Economy under the title Lloyd George's New Deal, based largely on the American New Deal, and very similar to his earlier works. The ideas were debated over 10 sessions of the Cabinet subcommittee, but did not find favour with the Conservatives at all, and it was dropped. There was a suggestion that he should be asked to join the national government, but far too many made it plain that they would resign if he was appointed. So it too was dropped. Many felt that Lloyd George was consistently pro-German and had been since around 1923. He supported Germany in its territorial claims and of its claim to be treated as a great power and seems to have had very little interest in the security of Belgium, France or Poland, Czechoslovakia and so on. In September 1936, he went to Germany to meet Hitler and to inspect the Germans' public works. Hitler was said to have been pleased to meet the man who won the war. And in return, Lloyd George said that he thought Hitler was the greatest living German. On his return, he wrote an article for the Daily Express praising Hitler and saying that Germany definitely wanted peace. He said, I quote, they have made up their minds and never want to quarrel with us again. He also said that he thought Hitler was a modern-day George Washington and was certain that the huge German rearmament program was purely for defensive 
not offensive use. Lloyd George intensely disliked Neville Chamberlain, though, and when he went to Germany in 1938 and brought back his famous piece of paper, Lloyd George changed his mind and spoke strongly against his, Chamberlain's, that is, appeasement policies in a complete reversal. In one of his last parliamentary interventions, he opposed Chamberlain and helped get Winston Churchill as Prime Minister. Churchill asked him to become the Agriculture Minister in the wartime government, but Lloyd George detested Chamberlain so much that he would not sit with him in Cabinet, and so refused. He privately also thought that Britain was sure to lose the war and tried again in September 1940, after the Battle of Britain, to get peace on any terms with Germany. Churchill compared him with Philippe Pétain. His last ever vote in the House of Commons was on the 18th of February 1943, when he was in favour of immediate acceptance of the Beveridge Report. The vote was lost, and the report was implemented two years later, after the war was over. He was terminally ill with cancer, and in September 43, he left his house in Chert for the last time and went to a farm near Boyhood Home in Wales. He was still an MP at this time, but far too weak to take any real interest in politics any longer. He was raised to the peerage as Lord Lloyd George in the New Year's Honours List of 1945, Strangely, under the rules relating to titles, his name had to be then hyphenated. He didn't live long enough to take his seat in the House of Lords as he died of his cancer on the 26th of March, 1945, aged 82, with his wife Frances and his daughter Meghan at his bedside. Four days later, on Good Friday, he was buried beside the river. There is a great boulder marking his grave, but no inscription. Later, a monument was erected around his grave. He had five children by his first wife, Margaret, and stayed married to her throughout her life, and was very upset that due to terrible weather, he was not able to be with her when she died in early 1941. His son, Gwilym, and his daughter, Megan, both followed him into politics. They stayed faithful to his liberal beliefs throughout his life, but after their father's death in 1945, had rather different views. Meghan became a Labour MP, and Gwilym went on to become a Conservative Home Secretary. In October 43, he had married his secretary and long-term mistress, Frances Stevenson, to the disgust of his children. He'd first met her way back in 1910, when she'd become a teacher to Meghan. Their affair started in early 1913, and they had a daughter, Jennifer, who was born in 1929, and died as recently as 2012. Frances became the Countess Lloyd George and is largely remembered for her diaries of the life and times of David. The historian Dan Snow is David Lloyd George's great-great-grandson and the Canadian historian Margaret Macmillan, who wrote about the 1919 peace conference in her book, Paris 1919, is his great-granddaughter. Lloyd George had a considerable reputation as a womanizer and was generally known as the goat. Apparently, Kitchener said in the early part of the First World War that he tried to avoid discussing military secrets with his cabinet because they would all tell their wives, apart from Lloyd George, who would tell somebody else's wife. 
I knew you'd like that one. So what do we make of him? As I said at the beginning, he was a leader in war and peace, a social reformer, a totally fraudulent salesman of honours, great womanizer. He was certainly a great orator, which got him out of a lot of scrapes. But he did have damaging battles against a number of key people, such as the top professional soldiers and sailors in the Great War. I'm not entirely sure that he was really a loyal politician, based on his split with Asquith, which broke his Liberal Party, his repeated interference with the work of professionals, such as the war leaders, definitely was a bad mistake. Perhaps he was a man of his time. He was certainly the first person from a relatively ordinary background to become prime minister. Mind you, he was a local man in this area for many years. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you.